Okay. Um, something I've been meaning to say um, for the last couple of weeks, and I don't think I actually have shared it, is um, if you're interested in the whole science, faith, dialogue, and questions, things like this, there's a program called Closer to Truth with um, hosted by Robert Lawrence Kuhn, or Kuhn, who is a neuroscientist, I believe. He studied neuro, uh, brain science. And um, it's available through YouTube. I've watched several things, and a lot of times it's overlapped, and I've sent it on to, uh, to Micah. And um, if you're curious about that, it's called Closer to Truth, and uh, it might be worth 28, 24 minutes uh, you know, on a Saturday to check it out. Got a few places up front too. Also, trying to um, think about as we kind of uh, come to the end of this um, class series, um, we're trying to think about how this conversation should continue um, at, at Otter Creek. And um, so, if you have ideas on that, if you think that's something that we should continue to pursue in some perhaps some other formats, um, then uh, talk to us about that. Um, We'd love to hear hear your ideas, your interest, um, just whether or not you think that's that's something uh, you'd like to see. Email. Email. Yeah, and I'll give you my email. I, um, I, if you, yeah, if that describes you, if you think this conversation should continue here, I would love if you would email me, and so we can just know that there is interest and um, worth, you know, see if it's worth exploring further. So, um, our habit has been to uh, kind of pray together at the beginning. And uh, I've scoured the internet, like I said before, for prayers written by scientists or by scientists about scientists or science topics. And uh, there's not as much out there as you might think. And so consequently... We need to get to work. Yeah. Exactly. So there's a book idea for uh, somebody. Um, but that explains why you might recognize this prayer. We are actually having a repeat. So this is a prayer written by Despina Katsudo, who is the project coordinator for... Equipping Christian Leadership in an Age of Science, which is kind of a, it's an organization, it's a long name for an organization, and they are based out of the University of Durham St. John's College. As usual, I will be reading the white part, and you will be reading the blue part. So if you would, say this prayer with us. Almighty God, whose faithfulness continues through all generations, we thank you for the gift of science. May we use it with wisdom and discover with awe the world you have as we await the return of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so um, in the course of this class, we've talked about a lot of different science topics. We've talked about new discoveries in space. We've talked about um, cutting-edge things. We, we've talked about anthropological uh, discoveries, um, picking out uh, lines um, written in rock from when asteroids hit the Earth and so forth. And the last uh, several weeks, we've talked about uh, what we've called the, these cathedrals of science, these mega projects um, where people are seeking to understand the deepest um, truths of our reality. Um, there's several more of these that I might touch on in the next few weeks. One is the um, fusion project uh, happening in France. It's very interesting. It has an interesting history. But I want to kind of um, uh, take a turn and focus on another um, kind of scientific idea this one is um, both more futuristic and quite a bit older. Um, it is more speculative 
it is um, coming and yet is not quite here. And so what I want to talk about, actually, if you've seen the movie Oppenheimer, you might have uh, caught, th there's a moment when the scientists are, um, are lining up to observe the first uh, atomic detonation, right? And they're all, like, they're prepared for this blast, and so they're kind of laying out on the ground um, to be shielded, and they, they're putting on welding, welding glasses to protect their eyes from the radiation. And there's one person who says, no, no thanks, I got this. And he's sitting in his car. And that person is a real, uh, a real person uh, named Richard Feynman. And he had uh, calculated that the, uh, that the light from the explosion shouldn't be able to hurt his eyes, only the UV radiation. And so he felt that if he was behind this plate of glass in his car window, he was actually shielded enough from the UV radiation, he should be fine. And he worked this out, and that's what he, he sat there and did. And he is probably the only person to have observed that explosion with his naked eyes. So that should tell you um, some things about this, this person. He's quite the character, and uh, that kind of illustrates he's very independent-minded, um, he has a lot of confidence in his calculations, right? And, um, and apparently uh, that all turned out fine. He didn't lose his vision. He didn't, uh, um, he didn't suffer from that that we know of. Uh, he went on to have a quite illustrious career. And, um, and so, yeah, this worked out for him, except uh, supposedly he saw purple for the rest of the day from the, the brightness of it. So maybe not exactly um, great, but, uh, but that was his kind of approach to things. So um, in 1959, uh, he got up and delivered a lecture, uh, apparently impromptu, no notes, um, just speaking off the top of his head about a topic, a question, a challenge he had been thinking about. And he called this talk, There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom. And, and what he had um, encountered was that someone had written the Lord's Prayer on the head of a pen. And he thought that was interesting. And he said, well, what else could you write on the head of a pen? He said, could you write the Encyclopedia Britannica on the head of a pen? And so he calculated what would you have to do to do that. And he, he um, came up with this calculation. If you took all the pages of all the volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica and laid it out, and to shrink it down to the head of a pen, it would be like this 200,000 size reduction. But using known technology and techniques, it was actually um, completely feasible to do something like that. And he thought, so if you could do that, if you could put the Encyclopedia Britannica on the head of a pen, well then you could put the entire Caltech library on the actual library card. You could put the Library of Congress on a piece of paper the size of Time magazine. And so he started thinking about like, well, you know, what are the limits to that kind of, um, that kind of uh, a process of shrinking this information down. And he thought about the Library of Alexandria burning and these, all these things. And he's like, what if you could take all those libraries and just shrink them down, maybe not just to the size of a library card 
or uh, uh, the head of a pen, but what if you could go further? How much further could you go? And so he started doing calculations uh, what the kind of physical limits of the universe are in terms of how small you could make something like that. He realized well, you can't write on atoms, but you can write with them. And so you could write with individual atoms, and so you could create um, all these books, all these libraries written in atoms. Um, and if you did that, then whole libraries would fit in a grain of dust speck of sand. And, and he said you could, like, you could create so many copies of these that you could scatter them across the world and they could never all be burned, right? They could never all be destroyed. You could have uh, infinite backups of, of these kinds of libraries. So um, he also thought, though, like, okay, if you could write that much stuff on, on, uh, with atoms, you could also build stuff with atoms. Right? You could start constructing Things. If you could move those atoms around in that way, you could start building structures, building uh, other tools, this kind of thing. He imagined uh, a, a person you, uh, working on a watch, like you know, a watchmaker or something like that, using tools that allowed them to work on these tiny pieces, and then using those tools to create tinier tools, which could then create tinier tools and so on, down till they could move the individual um, atoms around. And so all this seemed completely feasible. And um, if you did this kind of thing, what it would allow you to do is to start creating really interesting um, new structures with new properties. You could kind of skip over chemistry, which was about creating molecules uh, through these complicated processes, and just put the atoms in the places you want and create the molecules you want uh, mechanically using these kinds of tools. You could build new kinds of molecules and new kinds of things. And if you did that, well, they would have new properties that you could exploit. They would be, um, they would have all kinds of different ways of interacting with each other that you could use to build um, things like wheels and gears and motors and engines. Um, in fact, vast machines down here at the atomic level. And if you could do that, you could create not just motors and wheels and, and other kinds of tools, but you could um, create assembly lines. You could create factories. Um, and these factories could construct things from the ambient uh, material of the world, uh, from the ambient energy of the world, um, and they could construct things that we have never yet been able to, uh, to construct with our very big uh, technologies and very big tools. And so, if you could do that, interestingly enough, you should be able to actually use these factories that you built out of atoms to build other factories out of atoms. And so a factory that you built out of atoms could create another factory built out of atoms, which could create another factory, and pretty soon you have um, trillions of these kinds of factories, essentially for the price of the first one. Right? You pay for the first one, it pays for itself again and again and again and again until you have all of these self-replicating factories at your disposal to create anything that you might want. 
So what could you do with this if you could build things uh, at this level? So some obvious applications that were uh, immediately apparent, you could create new kinds of materials that would have properties that we um, don't have in any of the materials that we know of in, in the world up to this point. Um, you could do manufacturing from the ground up instead of being, bringing big, uh, you know, moving trucks and all this kind of stuff to build houses the way we do now. You could grow them using your trillions of factories um, just from the dust uh, surrounding um, you. could uh, set these machines to go through scrubbing the atmosphere or the water, removing... Uh, pollutants, removing uh, greenhouse gases that we don't want. This would be essentially a free way to uh, improve the atmosphere, improve the ecosystem, improve the water, however you want to do it. Uh, one of the things they talked about from the very first moment of this is the idea of a hospital and a pill. So you could have um, all of these tools, all these devices, scalpels, like all these kinds of things, and they could go in and they could measure things in the walls of your arteries. They could measure the plaque. They could even have scrapers that went in and uh, tried to um, scrape it down. They could uh, physically, he imagined like sword fighting uh, bacteria and so forth, right? You could actually tackle infections in this <coughs> physical way um, just by uh, putting a whole hospital, basically a whole world of, of tools and so forth into your body and controlling them as, as need be. Uh, one of the things that comes out of this is like you start seeing some really um, things that you would expect to be really difficult, really expensive, uh, become something else. And one of the uh, easiest building materials to get out of this kind of a process, one of the best building materials might be um, diamond. So you could actually find yourself constructing um, buildings, architecture out of diamond that you harnessed from the, the carbon from the atmosphere and wound into these diamondoid structures. This might be um, one of the cheapest materials all of a sudden. And so ultimately, if you could do this, you could um, create incredible structures, self-assembling cities. You could have um, incredible control over the natural, physical world um, to do almost anything you can imagine. Um, as we talked about from like tackling uh, things at the cellular level, repairing aspects of your body, um, maybe doing uh, replica uh, food replicators and so forth like you get in Star Trek, um, but basically creating this kind of utopic uh, diamond, clean, uh, green kind of world um, at will, right? With these uh, amazing materials, these amazing technologies, and really um, buildings and infrastructure that in some ways are deeply um, intelligent and deeply alive. So how are we doing at this, uh, at this project? So Feynman talked about this in 59. Uh, where have we uh, come uh, since then? So 59, he gave the talk. And 85, they actually uh, succeeded at his first challenge, which was to uh, put the Encyclopedia Britannica on a pen. Someone did that as a, um, a kind of student project. Um, 
And then um, in 1986, Eric Drexler wrote a book called The Engines of Creation. This kind of kick-started a lot of the modern like transhumanist movement and so forth, thinking about what you could do with this kind of technology and kind of working out uh, all the ins and outs of it and how, how you would use it um, for good and, and otherwise. Um, and then uh, in 2000, uh, Bill Clinton um, announced the National Na Nanotechnology uh, Initiative, I think is, is what it's called. And uh, this is uh, basically the United States wanted to put their effort behind uh, promoting this and moving it forward. Because they recognized this was an incredible power. And they talked about at the time about many of these applications that, that we've talked about. A few years later, uh, George Bush um, expanded the program, continued the program, and it's continued since. Uh, uh, later that year, uh, they, someone succeeded in the second of Feynman's um, challenges, which was to create a, a motor at, the, at this nanoscale. And since then, uh, we've actually seen a lot of progress in this area. Um, we actually now live in a world where we do have a lot of um, nanomaterials uh, that are in everyday um, stuff and gives new kinds of properties to many of our things. That's passive nanotechnology. We don't use these motors and all the kind of factories and so forth. We do have these new structures that we've created. Um, over the last 20-something uh, years here, we've seen this um, explosion of patents in this area, and we've got lots of people working on this. And yet, we still haven't built those nanofactories. We still don't have self-replicating um, nanobots that can do all this hospital-on-a-pill stuff. Uh, we have demonstrated the ability to pull carbon from the uh, excess carbon dioxide from the water and from the air and so forth. So we do have some of these things, but they're, they're taking a while to uh, work into practical application and to deploy. And so some people are getting um, uh, losing some, some hope here in waiting for the kind of miraculous applications of it to start to, to come out. So there is um, a, a reason for hope here, though. It's because not only do we know this technology is possible, it actually already exists. It exists and it does all of these kinds of things. And it is not confined to a lab. It's not only in experimental settings. It's all around us and through us and in us. And, of course, I'm talking about um, living cells. <laughs> Getting close, yeah. This is what a cell actually is. It is a self-replicating, um, incredibly robust nanofactory. It can manufacture um, almost anything. The, the kinds of, and it, it consists of all of these mechanisms, all of these technologies, all of this code running robots and, and in infrastructure and all kinds of things that manipulate matter at this level, right? This is what proteins actually are. They uh, assemble and disassemble and reconstitute um, matter all the time, right? And the world that they live in and they orchestrate are these basically tiny, nano, <coughs> massive cities 
of incredible scale. They have um, this incredibly robust technology. Someone talked about this as if um, we were barbarians stumbling into the ruins of ancient Rome and wondering at the, the architecture we had discovered there. But I think a better analogy would be that if we had discovered um, the technology and code and infrastructure of a billions-year-old alien ecosystem, right? an ecosystem that predated us and that comes from an intelligence and a wisdom that we do not yet understand. Right? All of that capacity that we've been talking about is right there and is built into the, the uh, essential structure of life. And it's built with um, techniques, technologies, and I would call it computer code, instructions, programming, that we don't yet know how to read. We know that we can read it, though. We know um, that this is possible. And if we could speak this language, if we could read this, these instructions, and speak this language, then all of those capacities that we were talking about, by all of the miraculous, wondrous things, um, would be accessible to us. The knowledge uh, to cure every disease lives in this world. The knowledge to change the environment, um, to fix and repair, the knowledge to construct um, things beyond our wildest imaginations lives here, and all we need to know how to do in some sense is to read it. We don't even need to build these tools, they're already here. We just need to learn how to speak to them. So Francis Collins, uh, who worked on the Human Genome Project in the early um, 2000s, he calls this the language of God, right, to be able to speak that language. There is another name that, um, another way of talking about this, um, in, we've been talking about the scientific revolution, the way people thought about things in the scientific revolution. One of the first uh, publications of the Royal Society in, uh, in, six, in the 1600s was a book called Micrographia. It was their explorations with a microscope, which is new at the time, and they were trying to catalog the tiniest life forms they could find for precisely these purposes. They believed that um, we needed to be able to, in a sense, speak the language, or as they called it, pulling from uh, Genesis 2, they needed to name the creatures correctly. They felt that if they could name all those creatures, if they could see the creatures at the, the base of existence and understand them and know how to name them properly, then they would be um, uh, accessible to us as they had been in the garden, as they had been at the first moment of creation, and the kingdom of life that God had entrusted to humanity would be open to us. So, there we go. Um, Psalm 65, 1-8 says, Praise awaits you, our God, in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. You who answer prayer, to you all people will come. You answer us with awesome and righteous deeds, God our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. 
who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. The whole earth is filled with awe at your wonders, where morning dawns, where evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. Amen. All right, um, I want to jump straight into a, a question um, today. So, um, I want to read this passage from Ephesians uh, 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I want to uh, put this question to the room. What are these good works? Taking care of orphans and widows is one of the statements in the scripture. Yeah, James, that's what James says. True religion, right? Um, taking care of orphans and widows, and what is what's other what's the rest of the line? Keep oneself unspotted. And, and in Matthew, Jesus talks about those who are hungry, those who are yeah. Yeah. So Jesus talks about um, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked. Right? What else? Yeah. Visiting the sick. What else? What else comes to mind? What do you think um, these works are? Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Good. What What do you think that looks like? Our favorite idea is, is the, the Jewish idea is to kumalum. Okay. And it's that uh, God created heaven's earth in six days. It says on the seventh day you rested. But the Jewish rabbis would say, "Are you really serious? You think God needs to rest?" Right. The reason he left it incomplete is so that we would have something to do. And so Tikkun Olam literally means to repair the world. Mm. It's every day you and I see someone or something that's just not right. Mm-hmm. And God has put you in that place at that time to repair the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you go back to that verse? Yeah. You can. <clears throat> so this can be applied in a group setting. We, we all, as a, as a corporate body, but yeah. it also can be applied on an individual setting. And that is each one of us in this room is God's craftsmanship. The word actually means craftsmanship, not, not Ikea, but... Yeah. individual craftsmanship and you individually are created in Christ, so that's the Father you, or, or maybe the Spirit is, is gifted us, is given us sure. you are created in Christ to do good works, and the last one is the killer, which God, the Father prepared beforehand for us right. to do in other words um, all things work together for good to them that love God the Father and are called according to his purpose what is his purpose? Mm-hmm. to use the handiwork in me in the works that Jesus has given me to do, and when I get to heaven, to say, "Did you find all the Easter eggs?" I just, yeah. you know, it's kind of, kind of <laughs> more like that. I think. Good, yeah. 
Yeah. There seems to be a problem, though, if we could do all this and totally repair things, yeah. then there would be no need for God's intervention. But that's not... And, well, but we're saying we, will, we can do... I think this works on an individual, but I don't think it'll ever work on a full... A full uh, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, view of yeah. I mean, I think for a lot of people, it's what, like, literally when you go to work. Yeah. Like, there are people in the medical field working to find things to advance. There are people in education. There are people in science, technology, all the things yeah. we've been talking about. All those people, I don't know if that means prepared in advance for you individually to do, but God certainly knew what things would be discovered when, and they had to mm-hmm. go in order for them to be discovered for the next thing to be discovered. So. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. When I went to engineering school, I remember there was a, one of the mentor professors in power engineering said, if you're not doing something to make the world better, he said, you're not doing engineering. Okay, I like it. <laughs> if you're not doing something to make the world better, you're not doing engineering. I love that. Yeah. It seems also that, um, like Jesus said, if you're faithful in little, I'll give you much. Yeah. If you're faithful with money, I'll give you spiritual authority. Right. If you're faithful in that which belongs to another, I'll give you your own. Yeah. So these works start small where our mistakes aren't in front of 10,000 people. They're in front of our, our parents, you know, or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And we learn that way. And the Father has prepared even the little works yeah. to grow us up. So it's not like when I grow up, I'll do this. It's, right. No, today... God, what do you have prepared for me? Let me see it. Yeah. So uh, works that we have right in front of us, but also works that God has like laid out in this kind of longer process, right? Like uh, there's there's works that will take us many years to get to, maybe lifetimes, right? Um, and and this is something as has been said, like that can somebody could do in their in their everyday work and their effort. It's something that somebody could bring to their work, whether it's of medical uh, work or whether it's engineering work. They can see this as part of the good that they're doing to um, participate in these works, to heal the world, um, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, what else? I think it's interesting um, for me uh, thinking about this passage over the last few years I've realized like I just assumed I knew what what it was talking about right I just assumed I knew the the good works and you know like I I don't know Boy Scout stuff you know like helping somebody cross the street or something like that you know I it it I it hadn't occurred to me to actually question what this is or or where it was coming from and this is true in my experience with a lot of Paul's stuff he just he just kind of casually mentions something that is part of a whole world of thought for him that it's easy for for me just to like slide over and and miss Um, so we've already said something about um, God's handiwork why do you think that's um, mentioned here what's important about that Paul's dealing with the new creation. He's dealing with new humanity. 
I think that's something that's critical about this text. We are God's handiwork created in Christ. This is that yeah. phrase that Paul likes to use a lot. And he's not talking about old humanity. He's not talking about outside of Christ. It's the new creation. And so the new creation actually is picking up the work of the old creation. Adam was created, Adam and Eve, humanity was created to do good works from the beginning. Yeah. That's what we're seeing in humanity as a whole. That's what we said earlier. That's what science is. It's the human activity. But that human activity was supposed to always be done yeah. in the power of God, in the wisdom of God, in the timing of God. This is the new creation. This is the new humanity doing those works that we were given from the beginning and will continue to do. Yeah. The here is created in Christ, not by Christ. So those who have, have become brought in, right. who are all far, have been brought near. You who are Christian, not a people are now a people. Mm -hmm. It is the people of God. Mm -hmm. We can use the word Christians if you like, that's fine, but it's it's the people of God, the new humanity. Mm -hmm. um, if Jesus is the head of the body, and we're all in the body, that head doesn't mean president, it means brain. Mm -hmm. And so if he's the brain of the body and we're in the body, then when I move my finger, my finger and my brain are very intimately connected on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, and I get yeah. think of all the things the brain does, and that's the, the picture Paul is painting when he's painting the hand can't say to the foot and the eye right. can't say. He's, he's painting that picture and saying that connection with Christ is that intimate on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis. Yeah. Yeah, so... In some sense, um, yeah, these good works are flowing forth from from Christ here in this in this picture, right? Um, so, you know, I think this is important for us to to notice. This is the passage. This is if you're looking for a proof text that says we are not saved by works, right? This is it, right? Um, we are not saved by works. The and I think this is actually really important. We have we tend to kind of slide on that right like we kind of like say well but you know but we still think like works kind of are deserving or something like that they earn us something i think when we conceive of it that way we actually miss what is being said about those works about the nature of those works we start thinking of it's like something good we can do to like win some favor or just to be ethical or something like that i don't think that's what he's saying he's he's saying um you know, you aren't responsible uh, for earning any of this. Uh, you were God's handiwork. God made you uh, for this purpose, and God has redeemed you for this purpose. And what is that purpose? It is that you were created to do God the good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. So this is when we recognize the legitimate place of, of good works, we, I think... Um, leave behind the idea of earning anything and we move towards this idea of, of God um, creating us for this kind of larger purpose. And then I want to like think about that um, prepared in advance. Uh, when did God prepare this? How far in advance? So I'm going to leave that question hanging and I want to read um, a, 
something from Romans 8. Uh, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. When I uh, used to read this, um, I had no context for what this could possibly mean. What about what about you? Does, has this um, been a a central verse that you that you thought about? Did you have any uh, interpretations of it? Was it clear to you what it what it was about? John says yes. New creation, new birth. Okay. Okay. Any other? So, for me, um, you know, reading something like this. I say, well, wait a second. When is uh, creation going to get this thing that it's waiting for? Why is creation waiting for this thing? Um, and, and maybe more importantly, like, where is Paul getting all of this stuff? Right? Like, he's assuming God created us in advance to do good works. Where does he exactly get that assumption? Is he just kind of assuming we are predestined, or is he looking at something more specific? When he says this about creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, is he just riffing? Is this something that um, is not accessible to the rest of us? Or is he drawing on something that was deeply part of his theological tradition and upbringing? I am somebody who has um, come to uh, think that the Bible actually does tell a single coherent story. And I think Paul had the same idea. I think Paul thought the Bible has a single coherent story. So when he's saying all of this stuff, I don't think he's um, pulling from somewhere inaccessible to us. I think he's pulling from the Hebrew Scriptures and his understanding of what those are. Um, And so I want to talk about Genesis 1 just for a minute. We've been talking about this uh, a lot over the course of, um, of this class. I think for Paul, he sees the whole scripture as a single coherent story. For him, that story has to begin in Genesis 1. That is the root and the foundation of the story he sees. And so like Daniel was saying, when you read Genesis 1, you have a whole world view laid out in front of you. It is a worldview in which God is a creator who has revealed himself in creation, revealed his nature and wisdom and knowledge and power in creation, and then given, uh, it created humanity in his image, and then given them a kingdom. And that kingdom is not primarily a political kingdom. It is a kingdom of life. It is ruling the creatures, it is ruling life, it is ruling the physical cosmos in that way. And so, and and what humanity is called to do with that power and that rule is to imitate God in God's own works of creating and cultivating life, which we see described in Genesis 1. Humanity is brought in and given the same task to create and cultivate, uplift, care for life. 
I think in Romans 8, when Paul says all creation is waiting in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, he's saying that was our job. Creation is waiting for us to do it. He's not riffing or spitballing. He's just saying this is the Hebrew scripture. This is where it starts. When he says God prepared works in advance for us to do, I think he uh, knows that God has specific plans, detailed plans, but he also is just drawing from this big plan where God set out works of cultivating and creating and ordering life for humanity to do. Right? I think you see this um, actually throughout the New Testament that, that Paul and other writers will just refer back to this. This was our calling. This was our purpose. This is what Christ is restoring in us. This this ability, right? And so if you think about that relationship that's set up here, a relationship between God as creator, creation as a revelation of God, and humanity right in the middle of it, engaged in this relationship where we seek out knowledge of creation as God has called us to, understand God better, and then bring the praises of creation to God in that process, at the same time ordering creation for the greater flourishing of life and the glory of God, then all of that complex relationship of a creator and creation and human beings, science is right in the center of that, right? And science, even if it's a secular activity, can't divorce itself from that. Science recognizes, even in a secular framing, that it is tapping into something transcendent, a wisdom and a knowledge and a glory and a power that is beyond human understanding. And so that, it really does mean, I think, um, science cannot ever be thought of as non-religious because no matter where we come from at it, science continually points us to God. Science continually connects us to God um, and science um, keeps opening the door to that idea of us participating in the work of God. It continually is showing us the work that we are here to do, that God created for us to do, and that is still there in some sense for us to do. And we believe as people of faith we, that Christ is the, the only path to truly doing that, but creation continues to testify, and science with it, that these tasks are there, that this good is there, that these works and this calling of God is there with us. Um, and that is our time. So uh, thank you guys very much. Um, definitely send questions, comments. If you would like to continue this um, conversation, uh, send me your name. I'd love to hear uh, more from you.